Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Hello, Ken. How's your week going? Oh, great, Josh. How about yours? My week is, is going all right. I see a, a notation that you've made at the top of the script that this is Unlikely Consequences Week. What does it mean, this Unlikely Consequences Week? Well, Josh, it means that there's a series of rulings and a series of different cases that seem kind of implausible and unlikely, uh, at least taken from the perspective of someone who hasn't been living the last five or six years in the United States of America. <laughs> okay, uh, on that note, why don't we start with E. Jean Carroll? E. Jean Carroll, uh, a longtime journalist and advice columnist for Elle magazine, uh, has been suing Donald Trump for several years. She alleges that he raped her at a department store in Manhattan in the 1990s. She made this accusation. He accused her of lying in extremely crude and, and derogatory terms. Uh, and then she sued him for defamation, saying that he defamed her by accusing her of lying about this rape. And this litigation has been proceeding, and it looks like it's actually supposed to go to trial pretty soon, maybe as soon as next month. And so, Ken, first of all, I'm always skeptical of these timelines when we see them. Is this really likely to be in trial a month from now? Well, you're right to be skeptical. Uh, so few cases go to trial, and almost no case goes to trial when it's scheduled uh, the first time. But this is a federal court, so it's a little more likely to go when people say it's going to go. And this has a lot of history behind it. So at this point, it's actually plausible it'll go on this date. It's set for April, and the judge uh, is engaged in a lot of the preliminary pre-trial rulings that characterize the time coming up to an actual real live trial. So it's plausible that it'll actually go in April or shortly thereafter. And so we have a ruling here from Judge Lewis Kaplan uh, in response to a motion about which evidence will be allowed in this potentially quite imminent trial. And so there are a couple of other women who have also accused Donald Trump of having sexually assaulted them in one way or another. And there is also the Access Hollywood tape in which Donald Trump famously uh, said that, you know, you can grab women by the pussy if you're a star, they let you do it. And the question is, are these things evidence that can be introduced at trial? And the the ruling on most of the items that E. Jean Carroll and, and her attorney, Roberta Kaplan, would like to bring in at trial here, uh, the ruling mostly is, yes, they are allowed to bring these things in. And that's that's sort of an unusual thing, right? In general, you're not allowed to bring in, you know, other accusations that are not actually being litigated in the trial, but there are certain exceptions that seem to apply here. Right. So this was a, what's called a motion in limine, a motion to limit the evidence that's going to be permitted at trial. It's a sort of motion that gets filed in big batches in the run-up to a trial. And this one, uh, Trump and his team were trying to keep out evidence of these other women who have accused him of sexual assault and evidence of his own talking about sexual assault, uh, the, the infamous so-called locker room talk. Uh, that was one of the first times uh, people confidently said, well, they've really got him now. Now he's finished. Um, <laughs> So uh, usually, Josh, uh, whether in state or federal court, you can't prove a case by proving someone has a propensity to act a particular way. That's improper character evidence. So you can't convict someone of bank robbery by saying, well, they've robbed six banks before. You can't uh, 
usually prove a civil case against somebody by saying they've done the same thing before. In general, you're not supposed to put in evidence of past bad acts simply for the purpose of proving that someone has a propensity to act a particular way. Uh, but there are exceptions. One exception is very uh, longstanding, and that's if if these prior uh, bad acts go to prove knowledge or intent or some relevant factor like that, then you can bring it in. But there are also factors that illustrate how the law of evidence is really not so ancient and traditional and neutral, as people would say, but it's responsive to uh, social issues and social ideas and to uh, political movements. So in the 90s, there was a general feeling that sexual assault cases were artificially too hard to prove. There were too many barriers put up towards proving sexual assault or uh, again, whether against women or against children. And so Congress passed a revision to the federal rules of evidence that allows for propensity evidence to come in for proving sexual assault cases. So uh, this is an exception to the general rule. And now in sexual assault cases in federal court, you can offer prior sexual assaults by this person. And Congress's theory for what it's worth is that these types of cases tend to be very much he said, she said, uh, without a lot of corroborating evidence, and that it's artificially limits uh, the normal evidence you'd want to put in uh, to prevent someone from showing that how someone's acted like this in the past. So here you've got two very distinct in time and very different sexual assaults that Trump's being accused of. One relatively recent at Mar-a-Lago uh, by a woman who claims that you know, he grabbed her by the shoulders and tried to kiss her and uh, while she was there. And one uh, a very long time ago in the 70s uh, from a woman who says that she sat next to him on a plane and that he groped her and sexually assaulted her. So the judge ultimately says, you know, whether these actually happened or not is for the jury to decide whether or not they're um, something that really bears on whether or not he did it this time, whether he did what Eugene Carroll claims is for the jury to decide. But under the rule, uh, this comes in. So Trump's uh, lawyers were arguing these are too distinct at time. They're very dissimilar. They're not really probative. But so th that did not carry with the judge here who said that the, the one factor that would seem to cut against introducing these is the large distinct period in time, but that other things, the pattern of behavior and that sort of thing, were reasons to bring these in. There, there's, also, there's also an interesting analysis here. The one accusation from the 70s about the airplane, uh, she alleges that the then future president tried to put his hand up her skirt. The other more recent accusation is a little bit more vague in terms of exactly what Donald Trump is alleged to have done. Uh, Natasha Stroyoff alleges that President Trump uh, attempted to grope her. And there's an analysis here from Lewis Kaplan because the evidence in order to be admissible here has to be about sexual assault, and sexual assault is defined in a particular way in the federal law here. It doesn't apply to all kinds of physical sexual misconduct. It has to involve basically touching or attempting to touch certain parts of the body. And basically, he says it's a, it would be a jury question 
to figure out whether this accusation that Donald Trump groped uh, this woman at Mar-a-Lago, whether that was an action that involved the president attempting to touch her in certain places on her body such that it would meet that federal law definition. It, it's just it's weirdly it's it's just weirdly technical to me. It is weirdly technical. And he even looks at Florida law because this happened in Florida to determine mm-hmm. whether this is plausibly a sexual assault. There are two things that the judge is doing. One is seeing whether or not these alleged assaults would fall under the statutory definition of federal evidence law of a sexual assault. The other analysis the judge is doing is the basic gatekeeping function that judges do on any piece of evidence under Federal Rule of Evidence 403, which is asking, is this more probative than it is unfairly prejudicial? And so, Trump's team is jumping up and down saying that, look, these are remote in time, they're very different, they don't really prove anything, and they're far more inflammatory than they are probative. And the judge thinks, no, it's not the case. So this, for a federal judge, is a rather hands-off approach to evidence. And it's notable because federal judges, they may not care so much whether the evidence inflames the jury, but they will definitely care about whether or not the evidence wastes time. So if you have to go into a whole mini trial over whether or not this incident in 1979 happened or not, when you're only putting it in to prove this is the kind of person who does this type of thing, a lot of the time federal judges will just say, no, you're not going to waste a day doing that. Um, Mm -hmm. Here, the judge seems quite receptive and and pretty generous to the plaintiff in terms of letting evidence in. When you say that, do you think he's making a mistake? Is he being excessively generous? Well, not a mistake in a legal sense. He has very broad discretion in terms of his views on what is or isn't too prejudicial and what is or isn't relevant. So I don't think he's making a reversible error, if that's what you mean. Is it fairly notably permissive in terms of getting in other acts evidence uh, yeah i would i would say that it is one thing that that we may be dealing with here is that the judge is sort of thinking well you know who hasn't uh, heard about Donald Trump being a, a sex pest and a you know a harasser? <laughs> and so, what's really the the marginal prejudice of um, letting this evidence in? And then, as for as for the Access Hollywood tape, I guess the question is that the, the Trump position is this was just locker room talk, and that when Donald Trump said that he would grab women by the pussy, that he was not being literal, and that it wasn't an admission of a sexual assault. And he basically, again, says, you know, that's a question for a jury. I mean, this is also this is kind of a funny thing because I realize juries are are told to put out of mind information that is not presented to them in the trial. They're supposed to make the decision based on the evidence that they have seen. But surely all of these jurors will be aware of the Access Hollywood tape before they walk in to the courtroom. I mean, not just generally aware of accusations around Donald Trump, but specifically aware of the things that he said on this tape. So it's kind of a funny thing to have this question of, you know, should this be admitted into evidence when the when the jurors will surely already know about it anyway? Well, Josh, it's it's easy for sort of super online news readers like you or me to think obviously they heard of this, uh, but you'd be surprised how often jurors are simply completely unaware of the things that, uh, you know, fascinate and obsess people like us. Uh, So it's plausible they don't have any memory of it. It didn't make a big impression on the time. They thought it was just political nonsense, that type of thing. Uh, But yeah, Trump is certainly someone who is 
extremely likely to have been in their consciousness before and for them to have an impression about the way he treats people. And so that's something that the Trump team is dealing with, while the E. Jean Carroll team is dealing with sort of the undercurrent of the 35% of America that thinks he's swell and, and wondering how many of the jurors are secretly or not too secretly one of those people. But so basically the idea is it's, a, again, a question for the jury whether that was just locker room talk or not. Exactly. It's up to the jury to decide whether that's purely figurative and just guys being guys and bragging and that type of thing, or whether it shows uh, that he was really confessing to having sexually assaulted people or that he uh, thinks it's okay to do so or whatever it is that it's a jury question, which is a a fairly, you know, that part of the ruling is appropriate, I think, Uh, leaving that sort of determination to the jury. the, The only part of the ruling that to me is a little notable is that the judge is letting in quite a bit of this stuff that's going to consume a lot of time and a lot of attention to the exclusion of the testimony about what actually happened to Eugene Carroll. Um, but th- this may be from a sensibility that's similar to Congress's sensibility in passing this sexual assault rule in, in uh, the federal rules of evidence, which is that, you know, it's, it's ultimately a he said, she said type of thing about what happened between Trump and Eugene Carroll. And this may be the type of evidence that's available about what Trump did or didn't do. So wait, so I, actually, sorry, Sarah has this note here. What about the dress? Because in the ruling from Lewis Kaplan, he notes that there's going to be no physical evidence. Wasn't there this rumor that there was supposed to be physical evidence that maybe she still possessed the dress that she had been wearing on this day? There was. I don't remember what happened with that or with the DNA for that matter. Hang on a second. Let me just see if I can. Yeah, apparently Trump offered his DNA in February. He had refused to offer a DNA sample, switch tactics, saying that he'd do one if Carol's lawyers would turn over the full DNA report in the dress. But the judge said, you know, you didn't do it timely. Uh, The report did not find evidence of sperm cells and that reopening the dispute would raise a complicated new subject in this case that both sides elected not to pursue over a period of years. So there is there is no physical evidence here. Right. Okay. so that's what happened with the dress. Yes. So with a with a. More normal litigation, I assume even as you're heading toward the trial date, you would be talking about settling and maybe the terms on which either party would be interested in settling would be influenced by the outcome of motions like this, that, you know, the judge produced a ruling here that is broadly unfavorable to Donald Trump that might make Trump more willing to settle on terms he wouldn't have been willing to settle on a few weeks ago. Do you think that's operative here, too, that, you know, that it's reasonably likely that we will see a settlement of this case before it goes to trial? I think it's unlikely because of the personalities involved. Trump has not shown a propensity to settle civil cases against him, certainly not anything that would cause him to lose face. And Eugene Carroll has shown a willingness to pursue a very difficult case at great expense over the course of years, up and down to the Court of Appeals, that type of thing. So this does not seem the sort of thing that feels positioned where one side or the other is going to make a rational business decision and let's close this out and, you know, it's going to cost more to litigate than than this would cost because what, you know, what she's really looking for is vindication and, and Trump's not going to give that to her. Mm-hmm. 
Let's talk about the the New York grand jury, this sort of odd set of developments in New York, because Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg came into office in 2022 and basically shut down a criminal investigation that had been ongoing into Donald Trump under the prior DA, Cyrus Vance. Uh, They were trying to investigate Donald Trump related to business activities of the Trump Organization. There were tax evasion issues at the Trump Organization. Ultimately, they secured a conviction of Alan Weisselberg, the CFO. They secured a conviction of the Trump Organization itself as a corporate entity. But they did not end up indicting Donald Trump there. And there was a lot of political drama around that. The very experienced attorney who was brought in on a special basis to prosecute that ended up leaving and writing a book about everything the DA did wrong by not prosecuting there. But then they've like looked under the couch cushions and they found a different thing that they are quite possibly about to indict Donald Trump over, which is falsification of business records. This idea that the hush money payment to Stormy Daniels uh, constituted a falsification of business records um, because it was concealed as a legal fee paid to Michael Cohen. And so it's a it's a misdemeanor to falsify business records in New York. It can be a felony if you are falsifying business records in order to conceal a crime. And so I guess, first of all, could this be a felony charge? Would be the would the idea be that the crime that was concealed was a federal campaign finance crime? That basically this was a campaign expenditure that was ultimately paid not by the campaign but by the Trump organization. And it wasn't reported, and so they were trying to conceal a federal crime, and therefore they could bring a felony indictment of Donald Trump over this. Yeah, it's not really clear what their theory is about what the crime is that he was trying to conceal because. At least so far, the exposition of the evidence does not suggest that it was campaign funds that were used to pay off Stormy Daniels. Well, but that's why it would be a campaign finance crime, right? If you pay the campaign expense not from the campaign funds, then you're cons- that, that can be illegal. Right. But it's a, it's a tough – I mean, what makes it a campaign expense? Trump's argument is, hey, you know, this woman was going to accuse me of uh, having an affair with her. I didn't want my family to be upset. I was willing to pay money out of my pocket to, you know, basically give in to this blackmail. That doesn't make it a campaign expense. And particularly given the intent requirements for campaign finance crimes, I think it's a fairly tough lift to prove that. Well, and, that, and that's why Trump has never been charged with that. I, notably, though, Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to that. Um, and that well, seemed well, sure. like an, an effort to establish the idea that there had been a campaign finance crime committed by other people. Now, of course, Michael Cohen was dead to rights on tax evasion. And so they had a plea deal and they got him to plead to this thing that they might not have been able to convict him of at trial. But I, I guess my broader question is, if you're charging someone under New York law for a felony falsification of business records because they were trying to conceal a crime, you can do that even if the crime they were trying to conceal was never charged, right? Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't require the crime be charged. It could be you were successful in covering it up. Right. Um, but you still have to prove that there was the crime or the intent to commit the crime or whatever it is. And that's a, a fairly tough lift. Although I think you could say that a jury is probably going to break all one way or the, all the other. Either they buy the whole thing or they don't buy the whole th- the thing at all. Josh, I think it's important to sort of like to point out the context in which we're figuring this out and the idea that um, he may be indicted on this. We found this out because apparently the DA's office 
offered to allow Donald Trump to come in and uh, testify before the grand jury. Now, New York, like a number of jurisdictions, uh, has a requirement where if you're about to indict someone, you're required to give them the opportunity to come in and talk to the grand jury if they want to. Now, this is a process that goes badly for almost everybody who is foolish enough to do it, with the possible <laughs> exception of police officers who shoot unarmed people who tend to use it to great advantage. Um, but yeah, they they made a big show of how they're offering Donald Trump the opportunity to come in, the implication being because we're about to indict him. Uh, so everyone's thinking, oh, well, he's about to be indicted. Not necessarily. So, you know, I could be completely wrong. He could be indicted this week or next week. But when you're thinking about what the strategy is here and what to expect, it's important to know that DAs frequently bluff. Uh, so the fact that they're telling you you might be indicted does not necessarily mean you will be. Like most criminal defense lawyers, I have had DAs tell me, well, Ken, we're about to charge your client, so you better come in and plead him guilty. You know, the statute of limitations is up on Thursday, so come in by Tuesday to plead him out or else. And I'm saying, yeah, screw you, not happening. And then the day goes by and no one's indicted. It happens. Is it absolutely going to happen here? No. Is there a reason for some skepticism over this type of thing? Yes. But I mean, would that be a strategy they would try to run here? There is absolutely no way that you will bluff Donald Trump into making a guilty plea here. Like, why even try? That is absolutely not going to work. Oh, I know they wouldn't bluff him into a guilty plea. They might feel that they could bluff him into coming and talking to the grand jury, which would be extraordinarily stupid to do, which every lawyer he has would be screaming at him not to do, but which plausibly you could see him deciding to do. Um, but which he has decided not to do. He doesn't exactly. always make the wrong legal strategy decision. No, sometimes for some inexplicable reason, he does the <laughs> thing that is coincidentally the right thing to do. So I don't know. I will believe it when I see it. But I'm just saying that the fact that they're trumpeting, you better come in and testify because we're about to indict you, uh, you shouldn't take that at face value. So Donald Trump put out this fairly long press release about how all of this is, you know, it's all political. And, you know, the, the federal government looked at this stuff and they never charged me on it because everyone looked at it and decided that, you know, that, that this wasn't chargeable. And that part is more or less true. I mean, for the reasons that you described there, the extremely high intent requirements and the fact that you can come up with a wide variety of reasons why you might pay off the porn star that you had an affair with to not talk, some of which are completely unrelated to your presidential ambitions, like maybe you don't want your wife to know about the affair. There are all sorts of non-campaign reasons why you might make this hush money payment. So the, the idea that this was a campaign finance crime was always a stretch. And Trump correctly points out that all the prosecutors who looked at charging this decided that they couldn't charge it. And he also says this is political. And I think that part is also basically true. I mean, we have D.A. Alvin Bragg, um, who's a progressive prosecutor. He's come under a lot of political pressure around elevated rates of violent crime in New York compared to where they were before the pandemic um, and whether his, you know, his charging strategies are exacerbating that problem. He's also come around a lot of political pressure around his failure to continue the Trump investigation that had been happening under Cyrus Vance. 
there was a competitive primary in which he was nominated in 2021. And, you know, if I'm the lefty DA in Manhattan and I'm worried about a coalition of moderate Democrats who are mad about violent crime and MSNBC addicted Democrats who are mad that I haven't indicted Donald Trump, that seems like a plausible basis for a primary challenge in 2025. One good way to neutralize that is to find any possible way to indict Donald Trump. And even if it's this very thin read, which I really think this is, the idea that the key offense that Donald Trump committed is that he made this hush money payment to Stormy Daniels and that he, and that he structured it as a, as a payment to Michael Cohen, that's what, what you're going to try to try him for seven years after the payment was made. He's kind of right, isn't he? Well, I mean, absolutely, it's political. And it, it may even be that politics is the prime moving motivation of doing it. You do not have the DA spending millions of dollars on a lot of uh, investigations of falsifying business documents from 2016. But the counter argument would be that it's uh, corrosive to the system to basically have people who are above the law and who keep skating again and again on committing crimes in public and that type of thing. But yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't disagree. I, I think there's no doubt there's a very large component of political motivation here. Uh, but I mean, here's the thing. It's it's a gamble. Uh, you know, you come at the king, you best not miss. And losing this or screwing it up somehow in a big, splashy way would be terrible for Alvin Bragg. So, um, you know, it's it's not without risk. But but the other thing is that there there are multiple parallel investigations of Donald Trump ongoing right now. And if, if Alvin Bragg indicts on this and it becomes kind of a debacle, is that a problem for the federal investigations? Is it a problem for the investigation in Georgia? I mean, there's other much more substantive misconduct from Donald Trump over which he could be indicted related to the handling of classified documents, relating to actions leading up to January 6th, relating to, to his efforts to interfere with Georgia's vote count in the 2020 election. I mean, I would I would be much happier to see him indicted for things related to that than to see him indicted over the Stormy Daniels matter. And I'm just wondering if there is any interaction among those things. Does it interfere with any of those things if Alvin Bragg indicts here and then the prosecution goes sideways? No, probably not. It's, you know, potentially helpful to Trump from a rhetorical and political point of view in that if this is a prosecution that seems bogus and goes badly, then that's going to assist his narrative that he's a victim of a witch hunt, which, you know, he says repeatedly in this press release. But uh, other than that, it's not likely to have any legal impact, barring something super weird and inappropriate happening, like finding out that they shared grand jury uh, information from one of the federal cases or something like that. It's not going to have a big impact. You know, some of the statements Trump made in this press release you could see being used against him uh, in different cases, including this one. He, you know, he runs his mouth a lot. Yeah, that's actually, we got a, we got a listener question from Tim who uh, wants you to add another category of uh, fora in which you should not speak while you are potentially under indictment. I don't think we've had press release uh, on the list of, of kinds of statements. You know, Ken has told us that you shouldn't go on TikTok and talk about your trial, uh, that you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't go on Mastodon, all those sorts of things. But what about a very traditional press release in which you open by saying that you never had an affair with Stormy Daniels? So, like, is it bad to do a press release? And if you do a press release, is it bad to open it with an obvious and ridiculous lie? 
Okay, well, first of all, let's point out that in classic Donald Trump form, much as he said with E. Jean Carroll, he said uh, he didn't have an affair with her, nor would he have wanted to have an affair with her <laughs> uh, because it's Donald Trump. Josh, I, I, I kind of felt as if saying don't talk, th- that don't issue a press release was reasonably within the penumbra of don't talk, but maybe I'm mistaken. (laughs) Uh, I'm kind of frustrated because I feel that, that, that my ability to tell people not to talk in particular ways will be consistently outstripped uh, by human innovation and communications. Uh, But here we are. Yeah. It's, it's a dumb thing for a normal person to do. Trump has the benefit where he's run his mouth so consistently that it's, you know, marginal returns at this point. And it's unlikely he's ever <laughs> going to say anything that at this point that makes things really, you know, meaningfully worse for him. He's probably already said it already if he's inclined to say it now. Uh, so a normal person should not do this. No, the, absolutely <laughs> not. Tim actually sent us a two-part question. The other, the other was about litigation by Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, who were uh, FBI employees involved in the investigation into the links between the Donald Trump campaign and 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 Russia in, in the 2016 campaign. They were having an affair, and they had some text messages that they exchanged that both indicated the affair and that, con- that contained various derogatory statements about Donald Trump. And this uh, was was very embarrassing and, and led to Peter Strzok's uh, uh, termination from the FBI. Um, and so they're suing over wrongful termination, the disclosure of those private text messages. They're suing the federal government. And they've been trying to depose both uh, Christopher Wray, the director of the FBI, and Donald Trump, the former president. Uh, and so there was there was a motion, there, there was a closed hearing about whether they would be, whether a deposition would be allowed. And, and the judge in this case decided that there would be a limited deposition. They can pose them, but for no more than two hours and only about extremely specific matters. And so we, we just have this brief minute order that, that doesn't tell us a lot about why and what. But the general proposition here is, you know, ordinarily, if you sue the federal government for wrongful termination, you, you don't get to depose the president. What, what do you have to show about what the president or the former president knows uh, in order to be able to get that uh, deposition? Well, Josh, it's not necessarily about suing the government. Uh, the, the so-called apex doctrine generally says if you, you know, if you sue – if you sue Facebook, you don't get to automatically depose Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, the idea is that you can't, by suing an entity, automatically take the time of the top executives in that entity. Because if you did that, then those people could never work because uh, those entities are in litigation all the time. So you have to make some sort of showing that you need something specific and actionable from this particular person and that they have particularized knowledge. And judges will be somewhat protective of the time of these high executives in in both government and uh, private sector, realizing that if you're not, then nothing ever gets done by those people. So here, uh, you know, Judge Amy Berman Jackson tends to be very thorough and thoughtful. Oh, long-suffering federal judge Amy Berman Jackson. She's back. Still suffering. One really questions what this woman did in the past life to deserve (laughs) this, but um, she clearly gave it a lot of thought. She narrowed uh, the deposition to a short period of time. She narrowed the topics. That's a judge basically taking charge and saying, I'm not going to let you just harass these witnesses because you feel like it, but uh, they've made a showing that there's some topics they may have personal knowledge of, and I'm going to let you do that. 
does that mean that they'll actually uh, be deposed? I mean, one question was whether the Biden administration will assert executive privilege on behalf of either Christopher Wray, who is still the FBI director, or on behalf of the former president. Would you expect the Biden administration to try to step in here? I mean, again, this lawsuit is against the federal government. And so while it's, you know, it's Trump and it's Biden, you still have the Biden administration here to uh, assert the prerogatives of the federal government, which he currently runs. Right. But remember two things. First of all, if they were going to assert that, I expect they would have done it already because nothing worse. A federal judge doesn't hate anything as much as like going through a huge, big analysis only to have some cun rushing. And oh, and another thing is, oh, we could have raised this before (laughs) as a reason not to depose them. But now we're going to do it after you've done all this work. So the fact they haven't yet tells me they probably won't. Also, remember, the executive privilege is fairly narrow. So unless this is stuff that was, uh, you know, really about advice being given to Trump directly, then it's unlikely to be plausibly within executive privilege. You know, here, my question is, why isn't Dean Cain getting deposed? Because you might remember, you know, the Trump campaign put together a skit about these two people and their affair. And famously, Dean Cain wound up playing Peter Strzok. So that's what I would be suing over. (laughs) And I feel that that ought to someone who is responsible for that ought to be exposed. But I'm not running the litigation, Josh. So I guess... They're not listening to me. I don't which which tort is that? The intentional infliction of Dean Kane? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, let's leave it there for this week. Uh, we're actually going to be off next week. Ken is going to be on a much deserved vacation. Congratulations, Ken. Thank you, sir. Um, but we'll be back in a couple of weeks. And one of the things we'll be talking about is uh, Jacob Wall and Jack Berkman. Who uh, Ken? Have they been? Has Jacob Wall been convicted yet of a big boy federal crime? He's been found liable for a federal violation that can also be a crime, but it's not the same, Josh. No, that's not the same. Jacob, come on. There's standards. TikTok, we are on this. Okay. (laughs) Okay, Okay, that's the show for this week. You know where to find us. You can find us at SeriousTrouble.show. You can email us. Ken, where can they email us? Rico Hotline at SeriousTrouble.show. Rico Hotline at SeriousTrouble.show. And of course, uh, you can go to SeriousTrouble.show, go to the page for for this episode. You can join the lively comment thread there. You can do that if you're a paying subscriber. If you're not a paying subscriber, maybe you should be a paying subscriber. You'll get every full episode of this show, over 40 episodes a year, and you'll get to join those those very fun comment threads. And uh, you get to support this podcast and, and make it financially possible for us to produce this for you. Um, so again, if you want to become a paying subscriber, you can go to SeriousTrouble.show and sign up. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon. See you next time.